Hello and welcome to Storytellers of STEM. My name is Rachel Villani. Today's storyteller is Dr. Karen Joyce. Karen is a geospatial scientist and today we talk all about drones, remote sensing, geography, and honestly everything in between. Karen wears a lot of hats. She's a lecturer at James Cook University in Australia. She's the co-founder and education director of SheMaps, which we'll talk about in this episode. And she also runs the drone data repository GeoNadar. I don't know if I said that right, which we don't even get to in this conversation, actually, so I don't even know if I've said it right. Anyway, so SheMaps is really brilliant and aiming at diversifying STEM using drones and geospatial tools do, through programs in schools. Karen tells a story of how it came to be in this episode, so I won't give it away, but it is just such a cool program, so I wanted to talk about it quickly in this intro. Also, I know Karen through Homeward Bound. We're in the same cohort, which is HP5, so we talk a little bit about that at the end. And one last tidbit, which I keep thinking about nearly every day, is solid advice from Karen for all of us struggling with motivation and getting things done, particularly our exercise. And I know I personally have been struggling a lot. She says, don't think, just do. So with that, enjoy this episode. So really, the first thing that pops into my mind is that when I think of Karen, I think of drones. (laughs) That's like... The first thing I think of. So I would love to work you do all the she map stuff. I know you wear a lot of hats, so I'm sure there's things I'm not even talking about. <laughs> so you just start there and then we'll we'll work backwards and forwards and sideways. Cool. Mm. So I'll start, okay, we'll start with she maps then. So um I guess I kind of have to start a little bit before she maps to set the scene of uh, why she maps exists and what it is as well. So I, um, I'm, I'm a geospatial scientist, so I work with maps. I really love looking at satellite images, like what you might see on Google Earth. And I do this to be able to understand what's happening in ecosystems around us and globally as well. And one of the things that I noticed was that if we go all the way back to the first day of my PhD, And I walked into a a conference and I was presenting some of my undergraduate work. And I remember going into, this is my first ever academic conference. And I went in and as I walked in the door to the plenary or keynote session, I turned to my supervisor and I said, where are all the women? And so this was back in 2000. And I did a head count that day and I counted that there was about 20% women at that particular conference. Now, for the past 21 years, I've been going to academic conferences and, you know, that percentage hasn't changed. It's still sitting at 20% women in my discipline, which is a bit of a pain, (laughs) Um, but not really dissimilar, I guess, to many women who work in STEM fields as well. Yeah, so I guess it's not that dissimilar to many women in STEM and, you know, until relatively recently, although I'd observed it, I didn't really do too much about it. And it was not until 2016, uh, it was National Science Week here in Australia and the theme for National Science Week in August of 2016 was drones And because a lot of the local schools around where I live knew that I worked with drones, I've seen some stuff that I've done in the media and all of that, they asked me to come out and chat to their students, which was really great. You know, I went around to a number of different schools, 
in our community and really enjoy going to see the, the primary or elementary school kids. Lots and lots of questions, lots of fun. But then I noticed when I went to our local high school that no girls came to my talk. And I said to the teacher, I was like, so hang on, why are there no girls here? Why is it only boys? And they said, oh, yeah, girls just aren't interested in that type of stuff. And I was like, what type of stuff? Cameras on drones that were used for for films, for science, for all sorts of things. Like, yeah, no, girls aren't really interested in that. So I sort of went away and, you know, did a little bit more research and, and found that a number of my colleagues experienced the same sort of thing across their sciences and the girls just weren't showing any interest in the high school engagement that they were doing. And so I actually applied for some funding to go back to that same high school and run a girls-only event because I thought, I wonder if we advertise specifically to girls what would happen. And so I got some state government funding and I went back to the school and I said, hey, you know, got this funding. Um, what do you think about me running a girls-only drone day? And I didn't really know what I was meaning by that, but I thought that sounds like a cool thing. And, and I said, so how about you ask your students and, and see if they're interested? And so, again, this was the kids that no girls came previously. And anyway, so the teacher put it out to their student body and within 24 hours they had 60 girls sign up and then they were starting to work on a waiting list. And so, you know, this is a school where girls are not interested in this stuff, right? Um, so, yeah, at that stage we you know, started to work on, okay, well, how do, how do I make something happen for 60 girls in, in a gym, in a school gymnasium where I had sort of, I'd come up with this idea that I could probably work with maximum 30 at one time and I had a plan of what I wanted the day to look like and I thought, well, I don't want to say no to all these girls, so I'm just going to have to do it really fast so I can do it in two sessions. So, yeah, so what I developed back then that we ran, we ran the first session in February of 2017 was a two-and-a-half-hour drone day experience where students would come along, they'd learn a little bit about drones, they'd all get to fly some micro-drones, so really small ones that sort of fit in the palm of your hand, and then undertake a mapping mission. So basically experience a day in the life of a geospatial scientist but within a basketball court. And we got quite a bit of media attention and then schools around the country started phoning that school saying, hey, was that good? Should we do it for our school? And then those schools contacted me and before we knew it, we had a business. <laughs> and it was, it was an accidental business. It was never really intended to be anything other than a one-off gig that we did. Uh, but we've now worked with thousands of students around Australia. We have the program running in 15 different countries. And it's, yeah, it's really exciting what, what we've been able to sort of continually build based off that initial experience. It's a very long story, but there you go. That's SheMaps and that's why it exists. No, that's amazing. I didn't, I knew it existed because I mean, it's existed since I've known you, but you know, which has not been that long. Um, yeah, it, it, but I didn't know where how it started. That's amazing. Uh, I love it. Yeah, it's it's fun. It's like it's been challenging. We, you know, we've had a mix of some different government grants that have really helped us out. 
and we have we have a partnership with an organisation here in Queensland called the Surveyors Trust, and they're really really good to us. They they provide us funding every year to continue to build the different things that we work with schools on. We run an annual competition for kids to map their school and look at the amount of shade they have on their school campus and then think about where they're going to plant some more trees. And, yeah, we do all all sorts of things with schools now beyond that initial program, which we still run that two-and-a-half-hour program, but we do lots lots of other bits and pieces that deal with geospatial and drone technology as well. When I was in college, we did some, like, GPS work where we just like paced out the parking lot and marked corners with the GPS. <laughs> Very different. Way less cool. Yeah, but I don't know. GPS were really cool when they first started as well. It's just that now everybody thinks that that's just something that you, you normally have in your phone, right? Mm-hmm. It's just taken for granted. 20 yeah. years ago, nobody knew what GPS even stood for. And maybe you still don't know what it stands for, but you know what it does. Mm-hmm. And I guess that's the the cool thing about geospatial technology is that it actually underpins everything that we do on a day-to-day basis but most people have never ever heard of it before Mm -hmm. so my job is to help people understand what the technologies are that we use every day and and to create not just consume Mm -hmm. yeah I work with a bunch of geographers that's what you know they call them here (laughs) that's the title or whatever and um yeah, and they do a lot of remote sensing. We haven't really done a lot of drone work yet, but I think they're they're going to go down that route at some point in the future once they can get everything together. But it's a lot of remote sensing and looking at aerial photography and like land classification and all these things. And it's just, I love looking at new aerial imagery, especially of like somewhere so dynamic like the Louisiana coast, because it's different. Like if they do a flight after a hurricane, it's going to be different. It's just fascinating. You can learn a lot. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, that's where drones are cool as well, because we don't don't need to wait for a satellite to pass over or for the clouds to clear. You can still fly, um, find a little window of opportunity where you can pop a drone up and capture some imagery and so much cheaper generally than standard aerial survey as well, which is how I started with drones, because it just costs so much money to mobilise an aircraft to get to some of the remote places where I work. Whereas if I just take my own drone, I can go do it myself. Yeah, for sure. And they, the like camera technology that's on these drones now is astounding. Like you can get such great imagery on a drone and it's just like, what do we need? We don't always need the satellite. We can get just as good imagery with that, like, you know, from land. It's amazing. Yeah, just not, not quite so good for large areas, but certainly sure. for small parts and then to be able to scale with satellites as well. It, mm-hmm. If I look at, I've been flying drones for about eight years now. So if I think about how that technology has changed over that time, it has been phenomenal, really. And, you know, the size of the drones have come down a lot. The amount of time that they can fly for is so much longer now. And, yeah, the photos, like even if I look at photos that I took a couple of years ago compared to now, the quality is just constantly getting better and new models come out every six months or so. It's actually a bit of a scramble to sort of keep up with the latest tech there. I could totally see how drones could replace Rachel trudging across the swamp trying to do a veg plot and we could just take a drone and do it like 
because they're not even very big plots. You could get really good imagery because it's not a big space. If why do I need to crawl over there? We could just send a drone to fly over it. <laughs> yeah, so how, how big is the space that you look at for your plots? The plots are two meters square. Oh, easy. Yeah. 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 Pop the drone up. And how many of those plots do you have spaced out? We, there's 10 at every site and there's 390 sites. So whatever that is, nearly 4,000 plots. Yeah. yeah. I could see that being the, the future of this down the road at some point. Totally. Yeah. Drone in, in your backpack, pop it out. Mm -hmm. But then, then you have, while you save the time in the field, then you've got a lot of time in the in the lab, you know, processing the pictures. Yeah, that's where it that. comes in. It's it's yeah. so easy to capture so much data, and you know, in all honesty, I got years worth of data that I've never processed. It's a bit yeah. naughty, but yeah, that's a whole other thing I didn't even think about. I mean, it takes a lot of time in the field, but you know, I'm I would be a trade. Yeah, good point. Okay, so. Uh, how did you get into, you know, geography, geospatial stuff, remote sensing, mapping, all of that? Good question. And another well, relatively long story, I guess. So I never, ever took geography at school. I actually thought that was something that was really boring. That was about flags and capital cities and populations and memorizing facts. And that was just never ever something that interests me at all um, but I always liked science I really enjoyed chemistry and physics and all that sort of stuff and when when I was trying to work out what I wanted to do when I went to university I had planned to take a science degree I wasn't sure what sciences I would take but I thought I'd, I'd figure that out when I got there and then like the week before university started they had sort of a bit of a a showcase thing set up and you could go around and visit all the different subjects and uh, I, I came across geography and they were doing a a field trip down to the coast and I was like cool I like camping I like the beach that sounds like a fun subject I'll do that and I yeah I really really enjoyed that and then I ended up so sort I of took that subject and then I just started looking for other subjects that were kind of similar I guess and then I transferred universities a year later so I had started to think that I probably wanted to work in a marine field and so I went through the prospectus of the university and picked every single class that went to the Great Barrier Reef and that's how I figured out what subjects I would do for my whole degree and I took remote sensing in my was my third year at uni and just loved it straight away and so I took that subject and then I, yeah, I just kept going, okay, so I want, I want reef stuff and I want remote sensing stuff and it just kind of ended up meshing, I guess. It was certainly never something that I'd planned strategically and, yes, sort of something that I just continued to follow, I guess. But I, I think probably one of the cool things with doing geography or geospatial science is that because... It's, it's, so, it's such an embedded technology that I can use the techniques and the workflows that I create that I may have done for the reef. I can take that and put it into another ecosystem. And so I'm not limited to say, oh, you know, I'm not a marine biologist. I can only ever work on marine systems. So I can work 
And I have worked in natural hazards. I've worked looking at, at fire, at invasive weeds, at rainforest, in agriculture, all different areas, but where I guess the earth observation, the geospatial science and the mapping stuff has all been the centerpiece for me where I plug into other disciplines and work with other scientists as well. The techniques of, you know, how you do remote sensing and things like that don't really change, but then you get to work in different systems and work with different scientists. And that just seems like that seems like that would just be really cool for lack of a better word. Yeah, for me it is because I really enjoy working with other people and working in teams. And, you know, when, when I choose the ecosystem that I, I work in, I would definitely choose marine coastal reef. But it doesn't stop me from working in other really cool locations as well and working on projects that I just, you know, I would never, ever have considered for myself. But because I can go in as, I guess, the technical support for other people, then that just broadens my horizons on the things that I can work on. So I've got a, um, a project that we're looking at trying to find some funding for at the moment that's looking at, at fisheries and crime and how we can use drones to sort of disrupt what's going on with illegal fishing. And that's just a completely different area for me. But another one that I, I get to meet some really cool people as part of that project and learn a whole host of different skills and and I guess a completely different discipline. I've never worked in crime before, but that's really fun. Yeah, that's really interesting. I would have, I mean, not being a geospatial person necessarily, I would have never thought to do something like that. So that's really clever and I like it and I feel like it's going to be fascinating. Yeah, I wouldn't have ever thought to do something like that either. It's, yeah like some of the stories that I that we've been talking about that are coming from from the crime side of the expertise I'm like whoa like no just obviously some of these things really make sense when you talk about them but it just is nothing that I would ever think about and you, you know you don't know what you don't know and that's definitely me in that space so it's it's fun to learn that and be in a you know in a completely cool and very very diverse team there as well mm-hmm so what was your degree from university tech? What did it actually end up being in? So I did a, a Bachelor of Science in Geographical Sciences. And then I did honours. So honours in Australia is a year of research and then PhD and all in the same field. So it was all Geographical Sciences officially, yeah. That's cool. Yeah, I was just curious because... You know, sometimes the degree titles don't necessarily say what they are, but that one's like spot on. <laughs> yeah. No, and I don't think PhD officially does either, to be honest, because when you say Doctor of Philosophy, well, you know, <laughs> what does that mean? But, and, and, you know, when you pass that, you know, I finished, finished my PhD, I guess, uh, 15 or 16 years ago, it's almost not really something that you talk about anymore because... I guess you get more defined by what happens between them as well. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, I don't talk about what I did my master's work because that's not what I do now. And it was just like, a, it's a stepping stone, right? Like sometimes you build upon some previous research, but sometimes you're like, okay, I have done this research and now that has led me to somewhere else in the path. And it just, sometimes it's, you just carry on and that's fine. 
Um, but I am intrigued by your PhD research because uh, I Google everybody before I talk to them just because I'm, because, you know, I'm just curious. I'm doing homework, not being creepy. And I saw your website and uh, your PhD was mapping on the Great Barrier Reef. And uh, the Great Barrier Reef just grabs my attention as it does, you know, probably everybody's. So I'm just curious what kind of mapping you were doing and like how that fieldwork went, like, or, you know, how all that went. Yeah, it's really interesting because I think my career has done a full circle. So I, I left reef remote sensing for many years and I'm back into that space now. But my where I was really, really into things in the late 90s, early 2000s was really driven by this question of how much live coral do we have on the Great Barrier Reef? And, you know, more than 20 years has passed and it's interesting that we actually don't know the answer to that question which is really interesting, right? So you have the Great Barrier Reef is, is a really, really big area. So all up, it's about the size of Italy. So I'm not sure exactly what state that goes to in the US. In Australia, it's Victoria plus Tasmania. And so it's, you know, it's, it's a really, really large area. And the Great Barrier Reef isn't just one reef. It's about 3,000 individual reefs. So it's actually really, really hard to get information on all of those reefs. But, you know, everyone wants to know, well, is, is the Great Barrier Reef healthy? Is it, is it dying? What's climate change and all this sort of stuff? And, and perhaps one of the most important metrics that we need is to be able to understand how much live coral we have as a baseline. And then is that increasing or decreasing? And of course, other habitats as well, but, you know, just one of those most fundamental things. And that's what I was interested in working on, on my PhD. And just a small area, so one particular reef on the Southern Great Barrier Reef. And we would go out, we'd do a lot of field surveys, which is you know, snorkeling, diving, which of course is the main reason that I do this, because it's good to be paid to do those sorts of things in places where people would go to be a very expensive tourist. Um, and we also flew aerial camera surveys at the same time using hyperspectral data. So this is data that is capturing all different wavelengths of light. So instead of just seeing something as the, I guess, the rainbow of colours that we see when we look outside, we can actually measure all these light, all, all this light and in, in different parts that we that are not visible to human eyes as well. So we're measuring all those, all those bits of light and using that to try to assess how healthy the coral is. And it, it's funny because back, back in the day when I was doing that, I was always thinking like, oh, it'd be so cool, you know, if I if instead of paying $40,000 to get an an aerial survey camera up to the reef to fly this survey for me. If I just had something for myself, like, you know, a remote control helicopter or something like that, that'd be so cool to have that. And, you know, fast forward 20 years, that's, that's exactly what we're doing and revisiting some of those questions with that, with more flexibility. So instead of having a one-off survey, which, you know, we haven't repeated since either, but we can now fly a drone daily if that's what we want to do if things are changing if there's you know maybe a bleaching event is, is going on we can continually fly these data sets so it's it's really interesting for me to have a look at work that I did 20 years ago and then revisit pretty much the same sort of stuff but 
figure out how we can now use technology to do a better job of it. The charismatic megafauna is not really, I mean, I guess it is, it's a giant living thing, but you know, it's an, it's an ecosystem that draws everybody's attention and like, I don't know what the word I'm looking for is, uh, attention and imagination, I think. <laughs> and so that's why I was curious. Yeah, I think, well, you know, the Great Barrier Reef is a, is a World Heritage Area and it is, it's, it's a spectacular place to be. And I, th I find it interesting because it's still one of those things that people say, oh, you know, it's the largest living thing that you can see from space. And yeah, I don't totally agree with that because it's no different to be, being able to see the Amazon from space anyway. But, you know, it still has that, I guess, that, that feel that evokes emotion with people as well, that it is a pretty special place to be. And, you know, I'm, I'm pretty lucky that it's my backyard. And this is, this is where I live too, right? Yeah, that's pretty sweet. I'm a little jealous, not going to lie. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, so you're at James Cook University now, yeah? Is that right? Yeah, that's right, yeah. Um, so, so what do you do at James Cook University? I saw it said senior lecturer. What does a senior lecturer do? Yeah, so, the, I, so I'm an academic, so I, I do teaching, I do research, just like in, in the US, US standard academic positions. We have sort of a, the structure, actually the names of each of the levels that we have in Australia is different. So I think you have assistant professor, associate professor, professor, I think. Um, so we have lecturer, senior lecturer, associate professor, professor. So at senior lecturer level, I guess is somewhere in between assistant professor, associate professor, I guess. And very, very similar to the US in that I, I teach a number of classes. So I teach the remote sensing and the GIS classes here at JCU. That supposedly takes 40% of my time. I have a 40% allocation to research, which you know, can be a variety of different projects that we work on. And the remaining 20% is nominally given to engagement, service, leadership type stuff. So that's a fairly standard academic role in Australia where it's called 40-40-20. And in Australia, we're funded for 12 months, whereas I know in the US, academic positions are often nine months and you have to find the remainder of your salary. So that's not something that we do here, which is kind of nice. Yeah, that is nice. I know I have several friends that are professors and uh, one in particular has usually finds funding for at least two more of those months, if not all three of them. And then the one he can't find funding for, he's just like, sorry, I don't have funding this month. So that's like in a way a reminder, because like, you're not paying me right now, like, fix the system, <laughs> you know? Yeah, it's really interesting though. I think that it I don't know, I look at it sometimes and I think, you know, I actually really understand that and it's a good way to get academics to bring in, in research funding and it stops people from being lazy about bringing in money, I guess. But it does make a, a hugely competitive system to be in. And the sort of the other aspect of it is often when I, when I apply for research grants, I'm not allowed to put my time into it. So... My, because I don't have to draw my salary from research grants. 
So it's not the same in the US, you apply for an NSF grant and you know it's gonna pay for 30% of your salary or whatever. But in Australia, if we apply for the equivalent grant, um, our time is given in kind and we apply for money for postdocs or whatever. But yeah, it's just a, it's a really different system and way that it's been set up. Um, it, it certainly is better if you want to be lazy and not bring in any money because you can, yeah, you've got your, you have your funding, but it also, it means that there are, you know, there are projects that, research projects that you can do that would be really hard to get funding for, but that doesn't mean to say that they're not worthy of doing. And so you can still do those types of projects as well, which is nice. Yeah, I find it really fascinating just from talking to people from around the world, like how the dis different systems work in different countries. It is just, I mean, there's pros and cons to everything, but it's just really interesting to learn all the different mechanisms, I guess. Yeah, I think so as well. I think it can become challenging sometimes when you want to do international collaboration though. So a lot of the US grants don't want to pay staff who are outside of the US. And for us in Australia, if we want US collaborators, we have to find money to pay them because they, they need their research money, which we don't need to find money to pay Australian researchers. So there's, it does, for me, it does create a bit of a barrier to negotiate when I put in proposals that have my US colleagues on them. A little bit different for the UK, but most most of my stuff is US to Australia. And so there's always those little things that you need to negotiate. Yeah, that's a really good point. That's a bit of a barrier for sure. Yeah, besides the time zone difference, you know. <laughs> yeah, the time zone's not too bad though, because I'm a morning person. So yeah, not too bad. That's true, yeah, good point. Uh, yeah. Um, it does work out. Sometimes it's harder than others. I guess it also depends like where in Australia and where in the US you are because it can be like really horrible or more manageable. Uh. Yeah, well, it's, it's worse if you're trying to catch up with people in the US and people in UK, Europe at the same time. And yeah, that's when it gets really, really messy for me. I, I have one group that I meet every two months or so and that has people from the US, Canada, Germany, Spain, Uganda, Singapore, Australia. Yeah, it's a midnight meeting for me, that one. I was going to say, somebody's going to be up in the middle of the night and I don't know who, yeah. but somebody. <laughs> yeah, you can't get around that one. And yeah. Yeah, it's what it is. Yeah, I love that you have collaborations around the world, though. That's, I mean, that's amazing and I love it. I just love when that kind of thing happens because science... And all kinds of STEM things don't happen in a vacuum. It happens all over and with collaborators and collaborating around the world is just really cool. That's so much more fun though, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And like, it, for me, it's actually really interesting where, you know, a lot of people think that COVID opened the door to, you know, external collaborations and stuff like that. But for me, it's always been like that. I, I have very few people in my local area that I collaborate with in all honesty more people are external and spread out and that's just because of the the type of work that I do I guess and it's great like that so you know I've been zooming for years and it's good that everyone else is catching up now oh yeah we're all just catching up to Karen 
Okay. Yeah. I was just saying like, I knew, you know, video conferencing was a thing that nobody ever used except just like Skyping with friends at random or whatever. And then I learned about Zoom specifically when Homeward Bound started and I was like, oh, what is this? And now I use it for the podcast. And so I'm like a pro Zoomer here now. (laughs) Yeah. It's so funny. And just, we actually started, we created an online drone education conference back in 2019 that this year will be, this will be our third year running it. And, you know, last year everyone was like, oh, we have to do these online conferences. We're like, come on, we did that last year. Everyone's just catching up, but it's good because now I don't need to train other people how to use Zoom to give a presentation because everybody knows that now. Right, yeah, everybody knows how to. Um, yeah, t- okay, tell me about the drone conference because that sounds cool. Yeah, sure. So it is actually a lot of fun. It's created the the online drone education conference to attack a couple of things. First of all, was that I had been to a drone conference in the US in 2018. And you had more chance of speaking if you're a Michael, John or David than if you're a woman. So I was pretty over that. Um, So I, I wanted a drone conference that actually reflected the diversity of people that I know are actually in the field. And I know there absolutely are more more men working with drones than there are women, but that doesn't mean to say that we can't find enough women to speak and women doing amazing things as well. Um, So that was one thing I wanted to do. And I, I just also really wanted to be able to showcase to school teachers some of the amazing technology that's out there and show how they might be able to incorporate some of those things into their classroom as well for the students. So it, we're into the third year running this year. It's in, it's in August, it's called EduDrone. And we have 40 speakers and we run it, we run two time slots. So we run a morning session and an evening session in Australia. So a morning session is actually this, this same time, 10 o'clock. Uh, every day for the week so the five sessions runs for an hour and that's the time when I get most of the U.S. colleagues on the call and I can have my U.S. speakers as well and then the second session we run is at 7 p.m. Australian Eastern Standard Time so no good for our U.S. buddies but really good for the U.K. Europe people so we get a really nice mix and by having that I can make sure that I get full diversity in a number of different areas because I basically handpick the speakers that I want to come and tell stories. And it's really great because we just have four speakers across the hour and there's a panel Q&A at the end. So the talks are nice and short and sharp and then everybody gets to have a really good opportunity to ask some questions and it's a mix of people speaking as well. So it's not just people who are using drones out in industry. So we'll have some primary school teachers talking, secondary teachers, university lecturers, university students, then people across the board through industry, government, military even as well. So it's a really, really good mix and lots of fun as well. So if any of the listeners are interested, you can just... Google edu drone, E-D-U-D-R-O-N-E, and find us. It's, I think it's $29 a ticket this year. Just keep it as low as we can just to cover some 
overheads of the platform and yeah lots of fun lots of really interesting stuff yeah that sounds amazing uh, <laughs> Um, I specifically have my neighbor who will probably listen to this episode because I'm going to tell him about it, um, who's going to be teaching engineering related things at their high school this year. And he's got to like get his pilot's license and stuff. And he's doing all that this summer. So he's got like a little drone in his kitchen. And it's like, I'm going to tell him about this. So Tim, I'm going to tell you about this. <laughs> totally. You should totally come, Tim. Most definitely. And you can, you can watch the re- uh, recordings after as well so for those 7 p.m australian time ones you, you don't want to be up at your midnight or whatever that works out to be definitely you can watch the the recordings totally come to the morning sessions so i know you through homeward bound and i know you're based in australia but i'm just curious how you heard about homeward bound yeah i don't remember actually i i've known about it for a couple of years and and looked at it and gone, oh, a bit too expensive. What a, yeah. And then, yeah, whatever it was two years ago now, I decided, yeah, maybe I'll apply this year. Yeah, that was a good idea. <laughs> Should have applied the previous year. Right, yeah, we're like the chaos cohort, but, you know. Yeah. We're getting to really know yeah. each other <laughs> in all this time. It's, yeah, it's so, yeah, so bizarre. How did you hear about it? Because, I mean, being in Australia, there's, I've got quite a few friends that have done it in the past as well. But yeah, so, so that's why I asked that question is because, like, I don't know what the actual numbers are, but it feels like 95% of people heard about it from somebody else, like word of mouth. And that's how I heard about it. Um, my friends, two of my friends lived in Australia for a couple of years, and a friend of theirs was in one of the really early cohorts, like maybe HB2. And, you know, they heard about it from her. And then I was, you know, lamenting to my one friend about how I felt kind of lost and I was trying to get some training, but it's not really available in my field. And I didn't really, I needed some direction and to learn some new things and figure out what I wanted to do with my life, basically what I wanted to be when I grew up. <laughs> and she told me about Homer Bound. I was like, that sounds exactly like the kind of thing I need right now. Um, and so it was, yeah, word of mouth, but like across multiple continents. Cause at the time she was living in the Netherlands. <laughs> and so, you know, it was like after the fact, but yeah, I mean, I, I actually applied to age before and didn't get in and then applied again. I was like, I'll just keep going. They're gonna have to tell me no a bunch of times. <laughs> so, you know, and it worked out this time. Well, I guess it was like a couple years ago now. And now so. it's like this extended time. Yeah. <laughs> Might've been something that you needed right then when you first applied and now it's just still kind of going. Yeah. Now it's been like three or four years since I first heard about it or something. I don't even know anymore. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. I'm, that's why I asked the question. I was just curious. I have one more Homer Bound question. Um, what is your favorite part of the experience or the program so far, even though it's been going on for a really long time? I've actually enjoyed the virtual coffees that Nat has set up. I I like one-on-one conversations a little bit more than the big group stuff. So just being able to chat with someone and actually get to know them a little bit better in a, in a sort of deeper conversation rather than some of the more surface-level conversations that happen. I would really, really like to do the book club more often, but it just doesn't happen. And even now we have an Australia catch-up on Wednesday evenings that I would love to say that I make, but I just 
yeah, I just don't seem to be able to. So it's it's good when I can just make make a commitment to go have a virtual coffee with someone and then do that. It's great. Yeah. How about you? Yeah, I like I've been kind of slacking on the virtual coffees. I've just feel it got to be summer and then field work and like life got away from me. And I just sort of like forgot about everything. You just accept existing and like whatever I was like required to be at. Um, so I've kind of dropped the ball on that, but they are really fun. And I really do like those one-on-one -on -one conversations. Although I, this isn't technically a virtual coffee, but you know, this one-on-one -on -one interaction, I would have not met you without Homer Bound. I mean, probably not anyway, but yeah. So it's, that's been kind of fun. Just like, just getting to meet people in whatever platform, um, book club, although that sort of has fallen apart recently because everybody's, you know, life is reopening a little bit and people have things they are doing and it gets sort of hard with the time zone sometimes, um, which is fine. But yeah, I think that's one of my favorite parts. Yeah. I also did a, uh, an online kids STEM conference, uh, or kids STEM show really last year. So when, when COVID first really hit and everyone went into lockdown, I, for eight weeks, I did a daily session of talking to a different scientist and I called on a lot of homeward bound people for that too. And just to learn a little bit more about the science that they were involved in, in a way that was designed to engage kids was fabulous because if it's something that you, you know nothing about, then you need it at that kid level. So yeah, there's some really, really good science communicators in our group, that's for sure. And it was, and actually not just, not just from, not just from our cohort, but from previous cohorts. So it's, yeah, really enjoyed learning about the science that they do as well, which is cool. Yeah, it's kind of yeah, fun to have a platform and like, you know, a, a reason to just ask all these questions about what somebody does, because I have friends that I've had on the podcast that I have known for like double digit numbers, double digit number of years. And like, I have no idea what you do for work, but I have known you for 10 years. Like, let's just dive into it. And it's been like really fun uh, to, you know, have an excuse, which, you know, I probably could have asked those questions before, but now it's like for a reason, it seems okay. So yeah. yeah. And you also don't have that feeling of, I really should know this about you. Um, and I don't, so I can't ask you anymore, but if I pretend that I'm asking so that everybody else can know it about you, then I can do that as well. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's a little bit of that as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's funny how, you know, like you have friends, you know, in different situations or in different circumstances or whatever, you're like, I know this part of Karen or this part of whoever and you're like I don't know the rest of them and then you're like oh but now I have a reason to ask so let's just dig in and it's so it's fun I like it yeah you must have learned so much through doing this podcast right so how many have you done now oh god 140 yeah. I think 140 but 120 something are out I, I have to check my spreadsheet every week be like what number is this so I put the right number yeah. on it it's amazing yeah yeah thanks I have yeah, a lot of time really on my cool. hands because I you know don't teach or have kids or family you know I, it's just me and the dog and so I'm using it for this and to read too much basically <laughs> it's fun yeah yeah no it's great and what an amazing resource as well for others to to hook into and learn about mm -hmm. yeah 
uh, and it is just like fun for myself. So maybe it's like a little selfish, like, you know, help me get through this pandemic so far. Cause I started it a couple months before. And then I'm just like, Oh, I just talked to my computer now. And that's where my friends are. <laughs> it's fine. Um, okay. So I have been ending all my episodes this year, recorded this year with like non STEM related questions, just, you know, for funsies. Um, and I know the answer to this at least a little bit, but the first question is, tell me about your hobbies or what, what are your hobbies? Wow, hobbies. I love going to the beach, even for a walk or whatever. I just love being there. I like to have my feet on the ground and being able to look out and see the horizon is, is amazing. I love reading as much as I can, which I don't do as much as I should and really want to. And I, I really like exercise. So if it's cycling or running or swimming or stretching or whatever it is, just being able to, I guess, feel physically healthy, it's really, really important to me. So I'm, I'm actually not sure if it's a hobby as much as a, a life need perhaps. And maybe all those things are actually I, like I feel grounded if I can see the beach, feel the sand and feel healthy in my body. I think it can be both. That's fine. <laughs> yeah. Um, sort of related to that. I've been struggling with like my running and cycling and just like training and working out in general because my normal motivation is to like register for a race or something and then use that 50 bucks or whatever to motivate me for like six months. And so I've been so unmotivated. So how have you stayed motivated? Is it just because you like, you do need it for your mental health? And I'm just curious because I'm struggling with it. Motivation is a myth. So I ask you, <laughs> True. Do, do you clean your teeth every day? Yes. Do you need motivation to clean your teeth? Sometimes, but mostly no. <laughs> so so why, why do you clean them? Like what makes you clean your teeth in the morning? Well, that's probably just habit. So that's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. It's all about habit. I, for me, actually, I, I find it really, really difficult to exercise later in the day. Mm-hmm. So I literally, I get my, my clothes, my sneakers, everything, whatever it is that I need are ready before I go to bed. And then as soon as I wake up, I don't think. If I start thinking, then I will talk myself out of doing, which is crazy because I know that I really enjoy doing it. So I have to wake up, don't think, just do out the door. And as soon as you start, it's okay. Um, but if I start thinking, I go, oh, maybe I should sleep a little bit longer. Maybe I could do this. Maybe I could do this. And then I don't do it. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. just it just it has to, to be a habit. Yeah. First yeah. thing, and then and then I feel so superior for the rest of the day, right? Like especially on my way home from the ride or the run, I, I look at people getting up out of bed. I'm like, I've already done my whatever. Yeah, so stupid, whatever. But it's it's done, it's dusted, and then it doesn't play on my mind for the rest of the day. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is that I really like to eat. So <laughs> <laughs> I, I, it's like I allow myself. It, it's it's my the currency, I guess, that I get to earn, earn it, go for a run, get to eat. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> All right, I might try that. I it's especially now in the summer, it's so hot here that I'm just like, if I don't get out first thing in the morning, I'm never gonna make myself leave the house because then I'm just gonna melt and I can't do it. <laughs> yeah, and then that's not healthy either, right? Like it's yeah. just too easy to dehydrate and mm-hmm. um yeah. Mm-hmm. But you know, first thing in the morning, you know, maybe before sunrise. I like I like watching the sunrise, so it's pretty special to go for a run to arrive at the beach as the sun's rising and that's mm-hmm. well, that gives me energy for the day as well so it does sound very nice yeah I normally rotate my exercise based on the time of year like I run all winter and then I'll bike you know spring a little bit in the summer and in the fall like in those like in between seasons between where it's like sort of cold and actually very hot and then I usually swim year-round but I can't, I can't swim right now because I don't have access to a pool at the moment. So that's like really bugging me because I'm like, it's hot. And I want to go swimming. I don't have a pool right now, but that won't last forever. But at any rate. Are they all closed from COVID, are they? No, I just, I didn't, I canceled my gym membership last year because of the pandemic and everything. And they were closed, you know, for months. And so I just canceled. And then um, I'm kind of just waiting to see where our office is going to be because we don't have an office at the moment. And that like, if it's in one spot, I'll join one gym that's right next to it. If it's somewhere, I'll join a different one. I'm like, I don't want to switch. <laughs> so just sort of waiting. And also it's field season. So the key is I need to be more like Karen and just get my butt out of bed and go right away. And then it'll all be fine. <laughs> totally. Don't think, just do. Yeah, I like that. Don't think, just do. Okay, my next question, and you alluded to it, is what are you reading right now, if anything? Oh, I thought you might ask me this one. Braiding with seagrass, with with sweetgrass. Yes. Braiding with sweetgrass. Yeah, Yeah. and you've read that too, haven't you? Mm -hmm. It's so good. Yeah, Yeah, I really, really enjoy it. I'm about halfway through and unfortunately not reading as much as I would like each day because I keep falling asleep, so I try and read it at the end of the day. But really, really loving that. It's great. Yeah, that's a really good book. I recommend it to anybody. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. And it's a good one to recommend as well because I think that a lot of people haven't come across it. So you generally, if you're recommended, it's likely that it's a good recommendation for them as well. And I I had seen that one come up a few times actually. And, yeah, then I saw it come up in your feed. I was like, yeah, yeah, I do need to read that one. It's really good. Yeah, it's sort of kind of, I guess it's sort of off the beaten path of like what most people read. Um, It's sort of in my wheelhouse because I read a lot of like, natural science that kind of thing um so it's totally in my wheelhouse but it's not necessarily for everybody so I just tell everybody about it (laughs) yeah and it's different because it's it's not really a story as well Mm -hmm. right like there's sort of all these little Mm -hmm. bits and pieces but yeah I I guess it's it's in my area because I'm trying to read a lot more indigenous literature Mm -hmm. and I really like the stories of country and stuff as well so yeah that's yeah just so it resonates on so many different levels really really liking it Mm -hmm. next to be trying to get my husband to read it (laughs) nice yeah and I I was thinking about it actually this morning because I was I was reading the part which is talking about the the three sisters garden Mm -hmm. with the the corn, the squash, and the beans. And mm-hmm. I was like, oh, I wonder if I can do that. We've got a patch, now veggie patch, that needs to have something in there because there's too many weeds at the moment. I was like, maybe I can make a three sisters garden. That would be really cool. Yeah, that would be awesome. I thought about it and then I was like, nope, it's too, I missed my planting window here. <laughs> so maybe I'll shoot for it next year. But yeah, just 
the way her writing is just so beautiful and it's I guess it's really like essays with a theme and like an end goal a little bit but I love those sorts of like reflective essays about something and then they all sort of tie together yeah yeah there's so many aspects of it that I, that I enjoy like the the writing can be I guess it can be a little bit flowery at, at times but that's done really well so it's almost poetic and it's mm-hmm. yeah really really enjoyable read and and very different to what I've to other books that I've read before as well so yeah definitely a good recommendation I was just gonna say thank you Karen for doing this this has been a lot of fun it's nice to have like a one-on-one conversation I appreciate you for for being on the podcast no, thank you so much. It's, it's a really lovely Sunday morning activity to have a chat with somebody. So it's great. And I really, really like what you're doing with more than 100 podcasts with women in STEM as well. So it's amazing. Great contribution. Thanks yeah. for having me. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah. Hey, y'all. It's Rachel here. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Um, I just wanted to have a quick reminder that if you or a friend or someone you think would be a good guest, if you have any people like that, let me know or send them my way in some way. Um, And how you can do that is you can find me on Twitter at Flying Cypress. You can find the podcast on Facebook at Storytellers of STEM. That's STEM with two M's. We also have a shiny new Twitter account for the podcast so you can find the podcast on Twitter at Storytellers42. Yes, I'm a nerd. You can also email me, storytellersofstem at gmail.com. Or you can find me and everything else on my website, rachelvelani.com. So you have loads of ways to get in touch with me. I want to hear from you. Go like the Facebook page, follow me on Twitter, follow all the storytellers on Twitter since they're mostly all there. And just, you know, have a good day and thank you for listening.